What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. You know, I used to pay escorts there. And you paid them for what? What services? Well, for sex. When I was a criminal, I would, um, especially when I was on the run, actually when I was a criminal at all, I, uh, I did pay escorts, prostitutes. And um, I don't know, if, this is one of those shows, you know, I spoke to Brittany Dunn from the Safe House Project about human trafficking. And I had not, it wasn't that I had, had was trying to hide it, but it's one of those things where just almost abject fear of even talking about it, of mentioning, because we're talking about human trafficking. And I never did that with children, but the idea of a man paying for sex was something that I was extremely uncomfortable mentioning. And in this interview that, that everyone's going to listen to today, we go through a good portion of that interview before I mention it. And, um, you know, it, it's with me, I, I guess that it's, it's a process of coming to terms with everything. You know, I, I'm adamant about trying to, not even trying, I'm adamant about when I have screwed up in my life that I need to talk about that. And this thing bothered me as bad, as bad as uh, the assault story, that elevator story when I was a kid, talking about that. And the reason that it bothered me, and we talk about this in the interview, the reason it bothered me is that I know that I was still victimizing those women at that point. Yeah, you're paying them, but... Was it ever really a choice on the woman's part to be a prostitute or an escort? And I knew inherently that it was never a choice. And I admit this in this interview that we've got coming up. And I admit that uh, when a woman doesn't have a choice and a man is having sex with a woman and she has no choice in the matter, that that amounts to rape. So I had a, a just abject amount of fear in talking to both Brittany Dunn of the Safe House Project and Smith Higgins about that. We went through a, a good portion of that interview before I said that. Um, and I kept thinking through the interview. I was like, man, I, I've got to get this out. I've got to get this out. For me not to get this out, this, it's, a, it's a disservice to anyone who's listening. And not only that, but it's a disservice to me and it's a disservice to the victims that I have throughout my life. And I finally mentioned that. And uh, I feel, I guess I feel better about that. Coming clean, I guess is, I guess is how, you, how, how, how I view that. But, you know, I, I, this human trafficking thing, number one and number two in the world is the United States and Philippines for human trafficking. Interesting. And we're talking about more than just sex. It's forced labor. It's um, most human trafficking victims in the United States. They are not immigrants. They are United States citizens. And Brittany, uh, we talk about that a bit. Brittany points out, and this is one of the things that, that completely floored me, is that 80%, over 80% of the uh, the adult prostitutes that are either on the streets or escorts started out as victims of child sex trafficking. And that, that can be either a family member, a pimp, something like that. That They started out like that, and it continues on. And it, it bothers me to no end to know that I took part in that. You know, it, it, it boils down to, you know, it's continually victimizing this person. Tell me about the Safe House Project. What is that exactly? So before the Safe House Project, across the entire United States, the Safe House Project provides um, places for victims of human trafficking, child sex trafficking, 
for them to stay. It provides rehab services, uh, educational services across the board. Before the Safe House Project comes into being, there were only 100 beds across the United States for victims of human trafficking. Across the United States, 100 beds. Now there are thousands, and, and the Safe House Project is one of the top providers of these services for human trafficking victims. Um, I, got, I got kind of interested in, not even kind of interested, what got me is, you know, I did this road trip for the first season of Anglerfish. Right. And I went up to, I drove up to Salt Lake City, spoke to Aaron Sherman, former FBI guy, and Aaron was telling me about the work he was doing with human trafficking. And he had went to Las Vegas, and when he was in Las Vegas, they had rescued all of these girls, many of them underage. Um, he had actually acted like he was a homeless person to get close to the house where these girls were, were basically bought and sold out of. Uh, it was a two-story house, the bottom floor. The, the pimps were having, uh, they sold drugs in the bottom floor. The upstairs was where the girls were. And uh, he had video of, of these SUVs pulling in. The girls would get in. They would take the girls out to the streets and sell them through the night and then come back the next day. Um, they rescued, I think Aaron said they rescued like 19 girls. What got me so bad on that is he told two stories. Uh, the first, he said, there was one of the girls underage and Child Protective Services is talking to her. And the CPS person asks the girl, where do you want to go? And the girl says, I want to go home. Home was not her real home. Home was the pimp's house. The state of Nevada has no real infrastructure for people who are rescued on human trafficking. So, the girl gets in the car of the CPS agent. The Child Protective Services, the Child Protective Services person, drives that fucking girl back to the pimp's house. Because what, that's all they can do. Because that's all they can do. That's what got me. That's what got me. Out of the 19 girls, only one, only one of the 19 chose to take the help that Aaron's group offered and step out of that. The rest of them, no. They went right back to what they were doing. So that, um, I mean, that's, uh, damn, man. I, I just, I, I honestly don't know, Ken. I mean, it was just, uh, and I've been thinking about my history when I was a criminal of frequenting these people. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole, the thing about it is, is online, there's like a whole system of websites, tutorials, education, everything else for any type of, and I'll call myself a John, any type of John that would like to either pick up prostitutes on the street or order escorts over the phone or over the internet. So there's a website today, it's called uh, usasexguide.nl. And on this site, there are, there are men who come on there and they will talk about the escorts or they'll talk about the street prostitution scene and they'll give each other advice on how to avoid police officers, that's, how to look for that. That's my question is, uh, you know, how do you avoid getting caught? I mean, because so, you can't just walk up to anybody and touch them on the shoulder and say, you look nice. I like right, you. you right. Know? It, hey. Things have changed in our lifetime. Exactly. So there's a whole system, much like the financial cybercrime, there's a whole system in place that teaches these people how to properly pick up these prostitutes, these victims, without law enforcement stepping in and arresting them. So they teach them, you know, if you're, if you're actually on the street, make sure the girl is walking. Make sure she's just not hanging around one small area but she's actually walking a path someplace because if she's just around one small area, that could be an area that's frequented by cops. There could be a cop car around. Yeah. Make sure when you're talking to her, so you pull up, she comes up, is she going to get in the car? You want her to get in the car because a law enforcement officer often won't get in the car. If she does get in the car, you want to do what's called the cop check. What's the cop check? She wants to, you want her to fill you through your pants. So you, you want her to actually fill your penis and you want to touch something on her, either her breast, her, her vagina, something like that. That's what you want to do. And that, that shows because a cop won't let you do that. Ah. You never want to discuss the specifics of the transaction until you get to the hotel room. 
you can't just say, are you a cop? And no, a- you can't. And that's one of the things that, uh, that's pretty, that, that's so weird about it. You'll get some of these girls that they think, or the guys think that if they ask, now you're not law enforcement, are you? And if they say, oh, no, I'm not law enforcement, that that covers you. No, it doesn't. And these sites teach people how to do that. It's the same thing with the uh, if you're ordering an escort online, or it used to be through the phone book when I was doing it, but uh, you there would be certain things you would have to do. So you'd order the escort. She would get there. You would not give money. Instead, you would have the money on a table someplace sitting there in, in where it's wide open, where they, where they could see it. You wouldn't discuss transactions until you both were naked. And at that point, you could start talking about things because a police officer would not get naked. So there's a whole list of things that are in play on that. And there's a whole system that, that allows these men, like I used to be, to go in and victimize these women without fear of law enforcement. You make me feel uncomfortable, Brett, when you say that you victimized these women. I certainly did. I, and I respect that. Okay. The other side of the story is they're putting themselves out there. Well, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And I, I have, in my history, I've justified that by saying much the same. All right. Okay. But Brittany, what got me so bad was that, that thing where she points out that over 80% of the adult escorts and prostitutes today, and that this, these are people working in strip clubs or walking the street or they're on what used to be back page, things like that, that these women started as victims of child sex trafficking, either through a family member, a friend, a pimp, something like that. So that said, what, what happens is, is you start off as a child victim. And you, that becomes your normal. And you just continue to go right on until you're an adult. So is there even a choice at that, part, at that point? And there's not. The, the woman, yeah, she's an adult, but because she's been victimized from some of these girls, you know, under 10. Yeah. Victimized from that point on, that's all that person knows. And, and for me or anyone else to come in and trained to be trained to, to do that. to have that mindset. Yeah. So and for me, like I said, for me or anyone else to come in and yeah, you can say, well, she she's choosing to do that. But is it really a choice when you've got that much history of abuse in your background? No, no. And that's that's one of the things I'm. I was I was really worried about saying that. So what are we going to learn in today's episode? Today we're going to learn about human trafficking, especially child sex trafficking. We're going to learn about that. We're going to learn about uh, how the victim mentality works. We're going to learn how the Safe House Project helps rescue these girls. And, and not only that, but they have an extraordinary success rate. Extraordinary. Without the Safe House Project, over 80% of them go back to what they were doing. With groups like, like the Safe House Project, over 80% of them turn their lives around. So that those those types of numbers are undeniable. We're going to know we're going to find out if if you want to help fight human trafficking, what you can do. We're also going to talk about that if you're someone like I used to be that did victimize these people, what that means. Not only what it means, but what you can do to to not do that anymore to move on what what you're actually doing realizing that and moving on from that and that is today's episode of the anglerfish podcast we talked to both Brittany dunn of the safe house project and smith higgins welcome to the anglerfish podcast where we navigate the dark waters of our online lives i'm your host Brett Johnson. Season one of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the original internet godfather and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to now being focused on protecting people from the type of person I used to be. This second season of the Anglerfish podcast dives into the deepest, darkest waters of our online lives. We'll be discussing fraud and financial cybercrime, sure, but also human trafficking, drugs, cyberbullying, fake news, extremist groups, nation-state attacks, child pornography, and more. 
Anglerfish believes shedding light on the darkest parts of the Internet helps us to better understand the problems and find solutions instead of living in a world of fear. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And today on the Anglerfish Podcast, we have Brittany Dunn of the Safe House Project and Smith Higgins, a friend, a fan. (laughs) <laughs> and an overall great person. Not saying that Brittany Dunn's not a great person as well. She is, but I just met her. I've known Smith for a while. Thank you both for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. thanks for having us, Brett. No, absolutely. And, and the reason I wanted you guys to come on the show is, you know, we've got the Super Bowl weekend this weekend. And of course, Super Bowl weekend is, also, is almost synonymous with escorts, prostitutes, human trafficking. And that's a huge problem across the United States right now. And I'd like, I know that Brittany, that you're with the safe house project. I'd like to talk to you about the human trafficking problem that we've got kind of, if you could tell the audience who you are, what you do with the safe house project, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Brittany Dunn and I have the honor of helping lead safe house project. Uh, We founded the organization as three military families um, at the beginning of 2018, really in response to a a domestic need to address child sex trafficking in the United States. So uh, child sex trafficking, we're talking about all underage children here. So what, what type of numbers are we seeing as far as child sex trafficking happening in the United States? Yes. So when we started, um, the FBI was estimating that 300,000 American children are at risk of being sex trafficked every year through either um, what some would call child prostitution or um, child pornography. But essentially, whenever a child is used for commercial sex, um, that is considered child sex trafficking in America. Okay, so that is considered that. So, so, and and let me, just, just so we can... So the audience knows exactly what we're talking about here. Human trafficking overall, it encompasses more than just the sexual traits. It encompasses forced labor, all these other aspects as well. Yes, of course. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and and now Aaron Sherman, he's, he's an associate of mine. He was telling me, and I, I had no idea of this, this statistic, but he had mentioned that the top two countries on the planet for human trafficking were the Philippines and the United States. Yes. So the Mm -hmm. Trafficking in Persons Office um, out of the Department of State just announced that the end of uh, 2019, that the United States has now taken that horrific title of being the top two nations in the world. That is absolutely insane. Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, again, we mentioned before, before we started recording today, I got involved in this or interested in this. I was, I was talking to Aaron. I did this road, road trip with the season one of Anglerfish podcast and, and Aaron was up in Salt Lake city and he was telling me some of the work he was doing for human trafficking. And what he said was, is they were in Las Vegas and they had rescued 19 girls, most of them underage girls. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the setup was the, the, the house or the compound, whatever you want to call it. It was a house with a two story house, the bottom floor, the, the pimps or criminals or whatever the hell you want to call them. They were dealing drugs in the bottom floor and they had the girls up in the top floor and they had it on video and everything else. And they, they went and they rescued 19 girls. And what he told me was, is he was like, you know, the, the sad thing about it is, is that a lot of States like Nevada, they have very little infrastructure on what to do with these girls once they're saved, once they're rescued. Right. And that is really, when we launched the beginning of 2018, what we found is that out of when, Today, about 1% of survivors are ever identified. And so even when we rescue maybe 3,000 children in a given year from child sex trafficking in America, there's no place for them to go. So when we launched, there were 100 beds in long-term restorative care homes across the United States. 100 beds across the United States. 
Exactly. And so we have this huge gap between how many children are being rescued and identified and the amount of services available to them. And as awareness is growing and as the public is becoming more attuned to how to identify sex trafficking, there is a deeper need for services. But the reality is, is that our states haven't been able to catch up with the demand for the amount of care that these individuals need. And so that's really why Safe House Project exists. We work to accelerate the launch of new safe houses as well as expand existing nonprofits to help them be able to increase capacity, help us be able to serve and empower survivors and really put them on a path to healing. Right. And just, just to feed into that, what Aaron was talking about, the, of these 19 girls, he, he remembered this one girl in, in particular, and they had taken them to Child Protective Services and the, the person at Child Protective Services in Las Vegas, they, she asked this girl, where do you want to go? And the girl says, I want to go home. Home being the pimp's house. Right. And the, the, because there was no infrastructure in place in Nevada, the child protective services officer takes that child back to the pimp's house. It, it, is this something that, that, I mean, to me, that that's just, I mean, that's horrendous. I mean, is this something that happens? Is this normal? That kind of thing happens. Unfortunately, I think that what we fail to realize is that 40% of child trafficking cases are actually um, trafficking done by a family member. And then another, 26% we estimate to be of a trust relationship. And so often that is the only relationship that that child has ever known. That is their normal, for lack of a better word. And so when those services are not available to assist a child, the um, state really has one of three options. They can place the child if they cannot go home into foster care, juvenile detention, or a mental health facility. And none of those are equipped to deal with the complex trauma that that child has endured. Right. The other side of that is that many um, in, of those who are rescued from child sex trafficking do not perceive themselves to be victims. They believe that they have made a choice somewhere along the way to be there. And due to the trauma bond that they have with their trafficker, they actually see themselves as a willing participant but we can all acknowledge the fact that you know, when there's a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old involved, regardless of their perception of the situation, the reality is that they never made a choice to be involved in commercial sex. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, Aaron was also pointing out, and, and again, all this is, is new to me, but he, had, he was pointing out that, you know, a lot of these girls, they're coming from abusive homes to begin with, and where do you go once you're rescued? Do you go back to the abusive home, which, which you ran away from, or you have felt you had to get away from, or do you go back to the, the, the pimp that's running you, running you daily? I mean, what, what do you do? And that's, that's where groups like safe house project comes in, I think. And, and I mean, you're from what I've seen, and I've talked to several people about it. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The States are having a lot of trouble playing catch up or even getting up to the, 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 the necessary level they need to help these children out. So, so you guys provide housing, you got, you guys provide, uh, I guess, rehab or, or cognitive behavioral therapy and, and education services, all that stuff as well. Exactly. So we really believe that in order to systematically approach this issue, um, at the point of rescue, we need to have a continuum of care established in each state, and we call that a safe house network. So that will be everything from the emergency housing where a child is placed as soon as they are rescued, and that honestly is the first time that they usually have had a healthy meal, a, you know, a full night's sleep, and really felt safe in a really long time. And that is our um, first step in really being able to start building a trust relationship with the child. Okay, so, so sorry to interrupt, but, but kind of walk me through this. So, so we, we, you rescue a girl. Mm -hmm. I guess the rescue on the girl, you, you basically, is, is it the process of maybe 
you know, the, the girl's on the street and someone acts like a John goes to pick the girl up, takes her to the hotel room. And at that point we have a conversation to try to get the girl out of the, the problems that she's in. I mean, how does that work at that point? Sure. Rescue looks a lot of different ways. I mean, we have situations where law enforcement is the one intervening and taking down um, a trafficking ring through a sting. Mm -hmm. We have the national trafficking hotline where we receive tips and then there is the opportunity to either deploy a nonprofit rescue team that liaises with law enforcement or law enforcement directly. And then we have those survivors who reach out to us directly and you know they've gotten out of their situation by one uh, means or another, and they right. need to be picked up and they are ready to um, try to start that path forward. And so that re rescue can look a lot of different ways sure. currently, but it, um, really it's about at that moment in which they are first coming out of their trafficking situation, you have to have a victim advocate, or we like to call them a survivor advocate, because right. our um, they are, our girls always, our children always tell us is that every day, even in my trafficking situation, I survived. And so we really believe that um, we need to empower them from the first moment. And so we call them survivor advocates that walk alongside these kids and are there to start building those trust relationships to help shepherd them through, you know, if it's detox, if it's uh, medical appointments or legal appointments and helping them navigate the complexity of the situation that they are walking through in that moment. So, so how difficult is it to build trust with one of these survivors once you bring her in and you're, you're trying to, I mean, you're trying to build the trust. You're trying to, to, to send the message of we're, we're here to help. We're here, here to get you out of the situation that you're in. How hard is it to actually establish that trust with that survivor? Usually that depends on the length of the trafficking situation and who the trafficker was. Um, if you have a boyfriending situation and they, per, and they see that um, their trafficker as a boyfriend or as some of them will call them their husband, right. that can be a lot more challenging than if you're talking about a family member and it's an abusive uh, or the trafficker was a, you know, a parent or a sibling. Because at that point, they realized that something is wrong and they just didn't know how always to ask for help. So each case is so individual, but in general, I mean, we are looking at the fact that this is a long road. This is right. not something that is solved overnight. And so from the emergency phase, we put them into a long-term restorative care home because it does take a minimum of a year in order to help them regain self-confidence, to find their identity, to start um, thinking about their life, not in terms of their victimization, but what dreams do they have for themselves. And during that process, there will be triggers that cause setbacks. And there will be those moments where they want to go back to their life of trafficking, right. because that was easier sometimes than trying to adjust their world to a new normal. And so what we really work to do is make sure that as they're moving through a program, that they have all of the necessary therapies that you would expect. But then we work with things like art therapy, music therapy, equine therapy. We have opportunities for them to, you know, get outside into nature with gardening and things that allow them to um, interact differently and process that trauma in a way that um, can sometimes be a little bit more therapeutic in other ways. Sure. And, and really it's that holistic approach. Right. And I really, I want to say, I really appreciate you, you mentioning that about recovery. Cause one of the things I'm really big about, and I, I was told this when I came out of prison and I was at say a halfway house in Tallahassee. And the statement was, is recovery is never a straight line. There's always setbacks, there's give and take, but, but hopefully as time goes on, you could keep progressing instead of continually falling back. Um, that, that being said, well, I guess I'm wondering, do we have a percent on how many of these survivors actually go back to, to walking the streets? Sure. We find that if they do not go back and, or if they do not get um, put into a restorative care program upon being rescued, 
um, our average and the law enforcement that we speak with says that it's usually about 80% will end up back in the wow. hands of a trafficker. Wow. For those that do complete a restorative care program and um, are put on a path to healing, we find the opposite to be true, that usually around 80% successfully um, make their way out of the life and, you know, are put on, are able to start really working towards a life of um, economic empowerment and independence and sustainability within their own um, community. And that's a huge difference, a huge right. difference. So, you know, is, is there a, here we go. Let's go down this path. Okay. <laughs> is, is there a difference between prostitution and human trafficking? Yes, there is a difference okay. between um, prostitution. Um, prostitution is considered anybody over the 18 who is willingly engaging in, com in commercial sex. Um, but under that header, you will have those who are still being sex trafficked and you could be perceived to be a prostitute. So do, you have, so, idea, do you have any idea about the number? So, so we, we've got the adult prostitutes, but how many of those started out as underage victims of trafficking? We find that majority of them do. Um, I don't, I would be remiss to try and say an exact number it, we find that usually about 95% of our survivors had child sexual abuse within their um, early childhood years. So as young as six or eight years old, and then that developed into child sex trafficking later on majority of um, people who are consider themselves prostitutes also usually have that same early childhood sexual abuse. Um, when I lived near Reno, Nevada, I lived mm -hmm. in one of the communities where the brothels are still active. And a lot of the work that we did within the brothels, so we were told by most of the women working there that if they felt like they had a different choice, 85% would be out of the brothels. And so we, even within the legalized um, situation of prostitution, we actually see a high propensity of trafficking. Wow. Wow. So this is, this is just, I mean, it's, it really is kind of mind boggling when you think about that. I mean, it's, um, what do we do about this? I mean, how, first of all, how can you see what are the telltale signs of trafficking so that people who are listening can, can start to at least recognize it? Yes, of course. Um, the physical signs usually manifest in a, for child sex trafficking, a child who appears very young, obviously dressing very suggestively, dressing um, inappropriately, maybe for the weather conditions, um, over-sexualized behavior. They can appear malnourished. They can have signs of physical abuse um, and just kind of looking a little bit drained and um, overworked, to be honest. Um, sure. The other part of that is tattoos and branding. Often traffickers will brand their victims with a barcode or a um, their name or some other element like that. We've seen it just be an initial. But it's, so it's like cattle. They, they treat them like cattle. Yes. So those are some of the physical signs. Um, emotionally, we see it linked highly to depression and suicide, um, mental health challenges, just um, children who appear overly tired um, and just kind of out of the moody. And I know those seem like general terms and you're like, well, I have a teenager sure. or I have a middle schooler, but it's that prolonged element. And it's multiple of these factors layering on top of themselves where you see maybe that they have a huge behavioral shift that they have done well in school, or even if they're not that straight A student, you know, you have a benchmark for where your child is right. and then you can see a substantial shift in that behavior. Um, and then that usually will come with the presence of an older boyfriend or somebody who is drawing them away from their friends and their normal behaviors. And so um, when it's taking place within the family home still, 
um, that's a great opportunity for an educator or a counselor or a coach to maybe be looking for those signs that a child might be experiencing something at home that is um, not normal. No, I, I appreciate that. So what should people do when they start to see these telltale signs that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on your relationship with the child. Obviously, if you are a coach or a teacher and you have that already personal relationship with them, you can ask them a few questions. I wouldn't be emboldened to go and you know try to do a full investigation yourself sure. by any means. But you can, of course, approach a child in those trust relationships and maybe ask some of the questions that, are you sleeping well at night? Or is everything okay at home? You know, and try to build that relationship. But if you suspect anything and you aren't even, and you're just seeing something on the street, the first um, action is really calling the National Human Trafficking Hotline or texting them at hashtag be free or you can report online. And what that allows us to do is create patterns okay. where we believe that trafficking is happening. It also, if it's an active situation, will deploy authorities. If you are on this, if you are driving down the street and or you're in a mall and you think you are seeing a very active trafficking situation happening, your first step is always call 911. That will always be the fastest response to getting authorities there. And then um, most communities are working to develop a detective or a task force who will be able to handle those type of cases. Um, but the tip line is a great way if you get two days past and you're like, that still is not sitting right with me. Right. What can I do? Please report the tip because that is the data that that provides to law enforcement and to the nonprofits to be able to map together networks of traffickers is invaluable. And we need a million eyes on this issue to resolve it. I agree. And, and you mentioned something kind of interesting, this, uh, this idea of networks. So when we're talking about that, I'm assuming that, that these traffickers, and should I call them traffickers or pimps? What, what, what's the preferred nomenclature there? I call them traffickers because okay. I think that yeah. it carries a connotation um, that doesn't always reflect the fact that now traffickers can be, you know, can be a family member, like I said, could be a sure. peer in a school or could be, you know, a coach or a pastor. You don't know anymore. Right. So I feel right. like that carries a little bit. Okay. So, so traffickers it is. So these, these networks of traffickers, do they, do they tend to stay in one specific area or do they move the girls or, or even trade the girls to other traffickers? Or, or how does that type of network look when we're looking across the United States? Yeah. So when you're dealing with trafficking networks, that will look different than isolated incidences of familial trafficking. So okay. when you move to that side of it, you're dealing with a lot more of your runaway and disconnected youth population um, and those coming out of foster care and running away. Within that sector, and then also abduction. Abduction sure. is only, though, about 4% of trafficking cases from what we find. Okay, and, and if you don't mind, before you, before you continue on the networking, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that, that I've been seeing, and I think a lot of people have seen that as well, is this, this story that's all over Facebook about this mysterious white van that goes and kidnaps women from malls. Are we actually seeing uh, that? I mean, is, is there cases like that or is this urban legend stuff or, or what's going on there? I don't think that kidnapping is something that's really changed over the past few decades. We all need to be aware of that on multiple levels. Um, kidnapping is something that has always happened, unfortunately, and we need to you know, be alert and help em and empower all of us to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, I would say that what we find is only 4% of cases 4%. are usually abducted. Yeah. Okay. And so when we're, what we're talking about is usually more with in the home or disconnected runaway youth. Right. There can be elements of kidnapping in all of this, especially because if you have somebody who, once they move them across state lines, it doesn't matter who it is, it is kidnapping. Absolutely. You know, so... It's a little bit of a gray, I would say it's a gray area in terms of um, terminology, but sure. I, I am, I would say we all need to be diligent. We all need to be aware in our, when we're out and about. I worry more about the online space and yeah, exactly. editors yeah. through a computer than I do um, about that side of it, honestly. Okay, me. and then uh, just to get back on the network on how that yeah. looks across the U.S., 
So when it comes to the networking elements, yes, traffickers are extremely well networked together, especially those who um, are involved in organized crime. And so what we find is that sex trafficking and human trafficking is now the number two illegal industry in the world mm -hmm. and it's actually growing. And so with that, that means that arms and drugs trafficking have deep links. And so the same networks that have historically been used to move arms and drugs are being used to smuggle people or to traffic individuals. Right. And so, yes, when a trafficker believes that law enforcement is closing in on him, usually he will sell his girls off to another trafficker and they will get moved. We find that if they are being trafficked through the hotels, they may spend two to three weeks in this one hotel and then move, you know, 50 miles up the highway into the next one or between sure. truck stops. And so the traffickers are deeply networked together. They use our, um, the reason that most cities that have the highest propensity for trafficking are on the roadways is because they're going to use that as a way to quickly move girls throughout the United States. Gotcha. So, so do we see that, uh, so, so moving these girls, you take traffickers that are say in Portland, Will they actually travel all the way to the East Coast, or do they just stay in this in that geographic area of the West Upper uh, Northern West, Northwest U.S.? Or how does that typically work? That can depend on that. That can really depend on the trafficker. Okay. They usually will stay regionally. I would believe. I believe, but we have seen instances where they travel, especially around major sporting events. Then they will travel with right. their girls. Um, or not just sporting events. I know that the Super Bowl obviously uh, gets a lot of publicity around this issue as well. Sure. But the same goes for any major event that brings a mass amount of people together. And so in those instances, they will be traveling with them. Right. And you had also, and thank you for explaining that. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. A couple of moments ago, you had mentioned the online aspect mm -hmm. of, of human trafficking. So would you like to just speak on that for a couple of minutes? Yeah, of course. I think what we have to realize, and I often get asked, how has this grown so quickly? And um, it's a hard question to answer because we don't see 300,000 American children walking around saying that they are being trafficked or that they are being abducted. If we did, I think everybody would stop and there'd be a huge look. And we're seeing that awareness grow, but the digital space has allowed for this to really be taken off of the streets and moved into the privacy of homes and buildings and hotels. And so what is happening is that you can, sex trafficking intersects legal industry. And so you can go online and peruse Facebook or Instagram, and you can actually find individuals that are for sale through very um, overt sites and common sites. And then they, the buyer will communicate with the trafficker over, um, you know, chat or whatever it is to, mm. to orchestrate the buy. And then you have rideshare companies and, or not really the entire companies, but rideshare drivers who will receive kickbacks from a trafficker to successfully transport the victim between the trafficker and the buyer um, wherever they might be, whether that be a hotel or a motel, a truck stop, a right. personal home, it doesn't matter, and then bring them back. And then you, the entire financial transaction can occur with a digital wallet. And so you never even have to have the trafficker in close proximity to the victim when you have all of these other pieces in place to make the movement of people possible. And that is facilitated by the online space. The other challenge with that is that just over a decade ago, everybody um, 
everybody received a cell phone essentially or a smartphone. Right. And so what was traditional child sexual abuse is now being recorded and in those instances of um, buyers purchasing children for commercial sex is being recorded and then distributed online for child pornography, which is also child sex trafficking. And so the issue has just exploded due to the susceptibility and accessibility of our kids through technology. Sure. So it's just a, it's just a continual victimization. And, and you had mentioned Facebook, a couple of these other websites, and certainly I've seen that on Facebook as well. Um, there are a couple of sites, uh, USA Sex Guide, that uh, I guess it's, it, I've been on this site. It looks like it's a site for basically Johns to discuss the different types of girls, what they do, their services offered, how to avoid police, everything else like that. So there's, it looks like there's an entire network that basically trains people how to buy girls, Mm -hmm. supplies the girls, uh, explains how you need to stay safe from law enforcement, everything else across the board. Right. No, absolutely. And it is, it's a very, um, diverse network. And one thing I should probably make sure that I make clear too, is that we're seeing a high propensity of um, boys as well. The DOJ came out with a study last year that said that 36% of victims are now boys as well. 36%. Yeah. So we are seeing a rise in that arena. And so I think that just makes us even more, uh, you know, need to be more aware of how this looks because it keeps changing. Um, I also get asked, well, is it limited by, uh, you know, social class or race or any of those other demographic indicators? And what traffickers will tell us is that you have a wide variety of buyers in this world and you need a wide variety of product. So, yes, there are going to be more vulnerable populations um, to being trafficked. But in terms of some of those um, demographic markers, it can be across the board. Sure. So, so let me ask you this, the, the Johns, the people who are purchasing the girls yeah. and, and I don't even want to say it, but I, I think I need to, need to just go ahead and get it out. When I was a criminal, I did purchase escorts mm-hmm. I, I, and I'm not proud of that whatsoever. Um, but I, I think I just needed to say that. Um, what would you say to these Johns who are, and, and my ones, I don't think it's needed to be said, but I, I did not frequent underage girls at all. It was just, but, but as you said, they start out underage. So they're victims all the way through. Right. What would you say um, to these Johns, these, these people who are purchasing these girls? Yeah, I think that my biggest thing that I want them to understand is at the end of the day that these, these children, these women, whoever it is that's being sold is not there by choice and that they have value, dignity, and worth as a human being and not as a commodity. Sure. And we need to um, move past modern day slavery in our nation and understand that when we, with every, you know, click that we make on a website, with every escort that is purchased, we are reinforcing a culture, a culture of sexual violence in America. And that is one of the most detrimental things to progress. And it truly is impacting not just that individual, but the next generation and future generations. And we need to, uh, we need to start standing up for the vulnerable populations in our country. We need to unite as communities right. to see sexual violence eradicated. And I, and I agree with that. And it seems to me that, uh, that what you're doing, because the, these women, even if they think it's their, their choice to engage in that, that basically what you're doing is, is you're, you're forcing yourself on them. You're basically committing rape right. at that point. Um, because she, she is not a willing participant. She is being traded. She is being forced into this. Even if, if her, her mind or his mind is so screwed up at that point that they think it's their choice, it's really not. Right, exactly. And just because you pay for something doesn't make it okay. Right. Especially because most of the time they're not seeing any of the proceeds of that transaction. And that, not that that would make it better or easier on the emotional side and on the trauma, but it really should go toward 
you have to be going into this eyes wide open and fully understanding the impact of our decisions and how that will continue to erode um, our communities if we continue in this way. I agree. And, and just to touch on, we're, we're going to finish up here in a moment, but just to touch on this as well. I mean, uh, from what I've read and, and seen, a lot of these traffickers, they, they control the, the, the victims or hopefully the survivors by forcing them to use drugs, by violence, any number of things across the board. Uh, is, is there a point where the trafficker simply has no more use or need for that victim anymore? And then what happens? Yes. Sadly, yes. I mean, they, you get those who, once they are too drug addicted or STD ridden, mm -hmm. that they are cast out. And that can look a lot of different ways. One of the leading um, deaths of, of victims of human trafficking will be homicide. Um, we also see a high rate of suicide, uh, you know, or they end up on the streets homeless, continually addicted to drugs and alcohol engaging in survival sex just to get that next fix and so what ha you're just creating people who truly need help and restorative care but at that point it's even hard for them to understand how to ask for it and their mind is so traumatized that it is extremely challenging to recover at that point and so um that would be another call to parents and those who are interacting with youth is when you find youth that have at a young age addiction to drugs or alcohol, pull that thread a little bit further. Sure. Understand if they're using that as a coping mechanism or if somebody is using that as a controlling mechanism, because if we can intersect it early on, the opportunity to, um, for healing and for change is so much greater than if we intersect these individuals further on in their life. Uh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. And I guess one final question, and probably the most important question is, what can we as a population do to, to start making a difference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of it is education precedes everything else. You need to understand the issue. One of our close partners has an incredible training called I Am On Watch at IamOnWatch.org. And that is the first step is getting yourself trained, helping yourself understand the issue. And then from there, it's how do you get involved in your community? How do you um, become a advocate for those? And that, does, that can look a lot of different ways. Uh, Safe House Project is uniting communities across America to um, provide hope and a future and a freedom for survivors of human trafficking or of child sex trafficking. And we need volunteers. We need people who want to get trained to speak into their communities. We need people to fundraise. This is something that needs awareness and it needs funding in order to um, really make a dent. And so those are just a few of the tangible ways, but I encourage people to visit us at safehouseproject.org to learn more and then to figure out how they want to participate. Thank you so much. Brittany Dunn of safehouseproject.org and Smith Higgins, hmm. who was a little quiet during this well, episode. <laughs> well, I, I, was letting, I was letting Brittany, you know, do her thing. Absolutely. You know, but I, I will say, though, uh, you were asking, you know, how to identify it and how do you get involved? And mm -hmm. the, the reason I got involved with Safe House Project is through an education um, course or um, event that they had in Charlotte several years ago. And when I learned that trafficking, sex trafficking is not the same as human smuggling. Right. So when you were talking about kidnapping earlier, you know, I imagine, you know, you get thrown in the white van, you're carried, you know, across Mexico or sure. God knows where. And then that's, you know, that's what happened. But when I learned that it could be family members or all those things that Brittany just just ran through. Um, I was horrified. And that to me is the most important thing is letting people know what it looks like. That it's not it's no longer 
stranger danger, you know, right. like don't right. get in the car with the, the strange man that has candy. It's, you know, it could be your neighbor. It could be someone that you are chatting with on a dating app or a dating site or, you know, a fake job interview. Um, so it's just, there's not a face to a trafficker, I guess is my point. It, no, you know, right. I think you're absolutely and, right. Yeah. Cause it's just everywhere. So safe house project is, is doing amazing things. And if we can educate people on how to look for it and, you know, combining with what financial institutions are doing with, you know, stopping the money flow. I think that's how we, I think that's how we make a, a huge dent in the eradication process. I would agree. And you, the reason I wanted to, um, you had sent me a quote. Yes. How easy it is. So do you have that quote handy? I, I don't have it in front I, of me right now. <laughs> I, I do actually. And okay. I know Brittany and Christy know this, this gentleman as well. He, um, he, he quoted in an article that it is easier to sell women than it is to sell drugs and than it is to commit internet fraud. And, it is easier um, to sell women than it is to sell drugs or commit mm -hmm. internet fraud. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, I believe it was Voss, was it Jeff Vosberg, Brittany, is that correct? I believe uh, so. Yes. And um, yeah, when I saw that, it, that, that blew my mind. Um, I agree. Brett, what do you, what do you think? And hearing what Brittany said today, based on your, your past and, and how you are now doing such amazing things and in, in reformation, how you know, would you take that quote? I mean, I, I think it's, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that outside, if you get outside of family, I think that a lot of this, a lot of the traffickers, view it as an economics problem. You know, you've got, uh, you've got a supply of women, you've got a customer base that wants the women and it's all about, I mean, Brittany had, had mentioned that as well of you have to have different types of product. So they're, they're not viewing the women as even human, but as product. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, it, I don't think that, um, I don't think that there's a worse crime on the planet than hurting children. Um, and then you're, you're, you're not only victimizing the child, but that person is growing up to be a continual victim. You're filming the children being victimized and then you're, you're marketing that. So they're, they're, the victimization continues at that point. I, yeah. I really don't. And, and like I said, I, I had, when I was a criminal, I had frequented escorts at one point. Um, not the least bit proud of that. Not the least bit. Pr I think that if, uh, if I'm going to go to hell for anything, it'll be that right there. And I, I would, I would urge any, any person who is, um, who is contemplating paying someone for sex, I would um, urge them to really think about the person that they're paying, that it's not a choice on that person's part that you're victimizing the person, that uh, you're, you're raping the person. You are raping the person. You are a rapist at that point. Now, you may try to justify it however you want to, but that's just the truth of the matter. Uh -huh. So I would, uh, I would urge anyone that, that is contemplating that to, to really think about that. I think if we could get rid of the demand, that that would go a long way, but I'm not sure you can get rid of the demand. Um, at the same time, these traffickers, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's enough punishment for them. I really don't. I think that, um, I think there's a special place in hell for those people. I think that they should be put under the jailhouse. I think that right. uh, the parents who, uh, or the, the family members who traffic children, <sighs> having a child is just a, um, it's a blessing. I, I never had children, but uh, having a child is a true blessing. And when you, um, when you ignore that blessing, when you decide to abuse that child, I don't think there's anything worse in the world than that. So uh, that, that's my thought on that. And I think that, yeah. um, I think that what you guys do at safe house project and other groups like that, I think that's uh, I think that's a true calling. I'm not a big religious guy, but I think that's, 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 that's God's work right there. 
I really do. And I, I thank you guys for doing it. And if there's any, anything at all that I can possibly do to, uh, to assist with that, I'd be more than happy to. Well, thank you. We greatly appreciate your support. And I really appreciate you sharing even your part of the story because we need more men coming together and creating a unified voice for men taking an active voice, having an active voice in yeah. this. And I greatly appreciate that and your support. So um, I agree. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brett, for, for taking the time to chat with us today. No, thank you both. Uh, Brittany Dunn, Smith Higgins, thank you again for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. And thank you again for all the hard work that you guys do. Thanks, thank Brett. You thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Other than saying hello, feel free to email questions, comments, concerns, or even show suggestions. I respond to every single email I get. And please, tell your friends about us. Rate and review Anglerfish wherever you can. As Anglerfish continues to navigate the dark waters of our online lives, remember, stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.